right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was all these wonderful images coming out of like nature healing, you know, all the dolphins are here and this is regrowing and everything, you know, the carbon emissions are decreasing over cities. And, and a lot of people found that very optimistic and very hopeful. And it showed to people how if we give the world breathing space, you know, literally breathing space, the world will heal at a very, very fast rate and nature will do its thing if we give nature the chance to. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and on this show, I, along with my fantastic guests, explore what it looks like to live a meaningful life. Each one of my guests want to leave the planet much better than they found it. Let's Give a Damn family, thank you for showing up. I'm so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's conversation, let's talk for a minute, or rather, let me talk for a minute. This is a very sad day. I'm recording this introduction on December 11. Last evening at 9.27 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Donald Trump and the Supreme Court of the United States murdered Brandon Bernard for being an accomplice to two murders that happened 20 years ago. Five of the nine jurors on his case from 20 years ago have come forward stating that they regret their decision. Over the past few weeks, Kim Kardashian, Helen Perjan, Shane Claiborne, last week's podcast guest and my friend Shannon Sedgwick Davis, and many others have been working tirelessly to stop Brandon's execution. SCOTUS had the chance to stop this state-sanctioned murder, and they didn't. Friends, we must fight for the abolition of the death penalty. We must not stop until that is a reality. There's no way to make sense out of killing someone for committing a crime. Did you know that on Brandon's death certificate, it states the cause of death as homicide? The state knows that it's murdering someone, and the state continues to do that over and over and over again. Under the Trump administration, eight since July, and they have four more planned outside of the one they did last night, Brandon Bernard's murder. The death penalty is barbaric and evil, and it must go. Guess which horrific list the United States is a part of. There's a list out there of 14 countries that still use the death penalty to punish people for crimes. We share this list with Bangladesh, China, Egypt, Ethiopia, India, Indonesia, Iran, Japan, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, South Korea, Sri Lanka, and Taiwan. Friends, I don't know about you, but that's not a list we should be on. Not because of the countries that we share the list with. I hope they abolish it someday as well. We should not be on a short list of countries that still punish people by murdering them. A fan of the podcast DM'd me this morning and reminded me that we must keep pushing back on this evil practice and that we must not, she reminded me, to not slip into defeatism. So I hope you'll join me in pushing back on this evil not slipping into defeatism. And let's move forward, continuing to oppose the barbaric death penalty. Yes? And I know that's a heavy way to begin this show, but it's our reality right now. And unfortunately, this podcast conversation will also be fairly heavy. We aren't going to discuss human death, but we are going to talk about animal death, food, and the inhumane things we do to animals just so that we can consume 
346 million tons of meat every single year. Friends, my guest today is the fantastic Ed Winters, also known as Earthling Ed, to his 1.2 million social media followers. Ed is a vegan educator, public speaker, and content creator based in London. He is the co-founder and co-director of Surge, an animal rights organization determined to create a world where compassion towards all non-human animals is the norm. Now, fair warning, you won't find me pushing back on Ed in this conversation because Ed and I are on the same page. We are both vegan. My family is vegan. Ed is vegan. Hear us out, friends. Even if you don't have any intentions of cutting meat or animal products out of your diet, I implore you to not ignore the real things, the real facts around the food industry. If you are going to eat meat or consume animal products, you should know what's really going on, and then you can continue to do that or make changes. I don't want you to feel judged as a result of this conversation. Ed is fantastic because he's so level-headed. We can all pull up a YouTube video right now of some crazy animal activists, right? Screaming and yelling. Ed is not like that. He is so chill, so smart, so filled with passion for a plant-based and vegan lifestyle. And I know you're gonna wanna follow him and engage with him after listening, even if you continue eating animal products and meat. He's just fun to engage with. He makes these pretty big realities and truths very digestible. And he's just a great, great human. So let's jump right in, shall we? A quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. I always love hearing from you. And now let's get right into my conversation with incredible damn giver, Ed Winters. Let's go. It is my great pleasure to have Ed Winters on the Let's Give a Damn podcast, coming all the way from London, UK. Uh, Ed, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show and for being so gracious as to host me. I very much appreciate it. Oh my God, the pleasure is all ours. And I'm so thrilled on, like more than normal, I have... I have multiple layers in which I'm thrilled about this conversation. Uh, food is such an important topic um, on all levels, from from you know animal rights to the environment to I mean, we need fuel so badly and so often, right? And yet, so many of us grew. I think there's a lot more consciousness now than there was when I was growing up. When I was a kid, where we just ate like shit and nobody. Like nobody was thinking about it. It was just like if it's it must be fine to eat this thing, even though I can't name any of the ingredients. And um, and that's how we just grew up. Like every half the stuff was fake, half of it came out of cans, and you know it was shelf preserved for fifty years. And so I'm I'm so excited about this conversation because food again, you are we're having a conversation in front of virtually and audibly in front of people that want to change the world. They want to figure out how do I make a difference. And so many people don't realize that food is such an important part of it. Even if they don't become activists in the animal rights uh, arena, like just knowing that you're doing everything you can to make the world a better place through, you know, loving animals, helping animals, and through the food that we eat is, it's a huge step forward. So I'm thrilled to have you on. I'm thrilled for the work that you do. And uh, let's get going. That was too much talking right there at the front end. Usually I don't do that, but here we are. I'm so excited about this. So um, let's get going. Uh, how are you? 
we're in the middle of a pandemic. Let's let's just start with some pleasantries. They're not really pleasantries because I really am genuinely interested in like how you are uh, dealing with the pandemic and all the just the the upside down world that we seem to be living in right now. How are you? Yeah, I mean that's a it's a it's a simple question, also a very deep question. I, I mean, I'm good. You know, I think you know all things considered. Um, you know, obviously, I, you know, being young and, and being in, in London, I'm somewhat unscathed personally by what's happening. But I think what's been interesting to kind of look out across the world at is, is I suppose, this idea that what's happening with the pandemic is teaching us quite a lot of very brutal and hard lessons. And I think for many, many of us, it's given us a chance to look in the mirror a little bit and look at how, I guess, fragile life is. And, and by life, I don't just mean like, you know, being alive. I mean, things that we take for granted you know, the community, the socializing, the traveling, or even just going to work, all these things have been compromised, things that we've never really questioned as being compromised before. And so I think what's interesting for me personally, and hopefully for, for a lot of people, is that it's kind of given us a glimpse of what could exist in the future, but much, much worse if we don't do something now. I mean, pandemic-wise, we've been told repeatedly that COVID-19 could well just be the first in a long chain of pandemics or, you know, infectious diseases that we have to fight um, in the not so distant future. And so in many ways, this is almost like a, a rehearsal, a dress rehearsal for something else that could come along that could potentially be much worse. I mean, there's strains of, you know, bird flu and swine flu that are a lot more deadly than, than this coronavirus. Um, but I think from an environmental perspective as well, is teaching us how fragile our life is and existence is and how quickly yeah. just a blink of an eye it could be taken from us. And that's something that I'm coming to terms with a little bit. Like I'm, I'm aware of the environmental damage. I'm aware of the threats, the existential threats to humanity. But we don't often think about it. But this year, a lot of, especially we had the Australian wildfires at the beginning of this year. There was the threat of the you know World War Three at the beginning of this year. Then we have the pandemic, and there's the wildfires in California and Oregon. And you just think, wow, this has been a real battering year of all these different things that are taking place. But it could be worse. And so, for me, it's like I'm good, but I'm also slightly more apprehensive now about the future than potentially I was. And I suppose the the crux to, to that, or, or the the flip side to that, is the apprehension can be used to make us want to do more, to help, you know, can fuel us to want to be more vocal, can fuel us to want to make better steps in our own individual life. And fingers crossed that's something that's been felt by, you know, a large number of people this year. You are spot on that. I mean, I feel super blessed. I feel super, you know, very privileged that I have a home um, that my family can be safe in. And also that I do the kind of work that I can do from, you know, the safety of my, you know, backyard, the shed in my backyard, which I had to transition to when the pandemic started and I had to leave, you know, coffee shops and co-working spaces. And, um, and yeah, my, I, when I look out the window right now, that's in front of me, everything looks okay. Like there's no bombs going off. Like there's no, there's no scenario in which people run up my driveway to kidnap my family or take, you know what I'm saying? Like those things aren't happening. And yet there are still so many things happening and I, you're, you're right to you're right to look to the future and say i'm very hopeful but i'm also like oh shit this is going to get a lot worse it could get a lot worse if we don't take this more seriously and this being you know pandemic related things uh racial tension you know race issues on race um and just how we treat each other in the world you know like there's such a there's such a especially here in the US I'm I'm interested and I'll ask you in a second like I'm interested on your views being you know being an outsider looking at the United States right now like 
how do you see things? But it's it's so interesting living, you know, around so many people that are functioning very um uh as 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 extreme nationalists, right? Like this is the only country that I care about. Like, you know, America first and like I only care about what happens here and it's like that's you can't do that. You can't do that because we're all connected, right? If, you know, we're not going to go down that rabbit trail, but if indeed this virus did come from, you know, somewhere in China, um like okay, and and then it came here and then it went to the rest of the world and we spread some of it and people spread it to us. We can't think so insularly about, uh, we have to become, we can equally love our country and also be globalists in that yeah. we, we're all neighbors, dude. You and I, we're neighbors, man, because the, the stuff that I do will affect you and the stuff you do affects me. And that's just the truth of it. And so there is, I am equally hopeful and also like, oh shit, like we have got to fix some stuff moving forward in this new uh, uh, mid, mid COVID to post COVID world that we're in. Like we've got to change some stuff or else it's going to get a lot worse. Right. Um, and so I, I feel that so deeply, but what, what do you see you living in London, like looking at, I mean, I, I don't know where you are politically. I could probably guess, but I, you know, you guys aren't. You guys have your own problems there to deal with. With, oh, uh, yeah. you know, with your uh, uh, wonderfully wild government that you have. But looking at the U.S., like, what do you? What's your sense on you know what's happened this summer with you know with the the murder of George Floyd in broad daylight and and the how the how the United States has or it rather has not reacted well to the pandemic and all of that stuff. Like, what's What's sort of your take on, on us right now? It's a really good question. I mean, I think in many ways, 2020 has somewhat broken down the facade of um, how the world views each other. And it's, it's, I think it's exposed in, in the US a lot of what we already knew existed. I think there was this, this almost uh, denialism back before 2016 that a lot of the problems in the US had been kind of like stopped and everything was fine, but you know, we all knew that the problems still existed and they were merely just being masked. And those that, you know, the white supremacy, the inherent injustices that exist throughout, and it's not just the US society, but in the US, we knew that they, they still existed. Um, I think 2020 has really shown on all different levels, just how, as you say, interconnected we are and just how far this nationalistic populist movement has affected the world in so many dangerous ways. And look, what happened during the summer in the US was disturbing to, to all of us, but we have a problem in Britain. We're not, we're not just in, in Britain, but this idea of exceptionalism, where we're very happy to point and go, gosh, the US has a lot of racist problems, or gosh, the US has a lot of issues with how they treat animals and each other in the environment. But then we lack the insight to look at our own actions and look at how our police forces, look at how you know they're undercurrents of the same issues within our society. And so I'm always hesitant to kind of point the finger, although I think the issues are somewhat more obvious in the US. And I think there is also kind of, it's almost like the US is Britain on steroids. You know, we exist in like a microcosm yep. of what the US represents, but those issues are still there. I mean, look, back in 2016, Brexit happened before Trump did, you know, and I think so we kind of almost set the groundwork for what would happen in November in 2016. So, you know, we point the finger a lot, but at the same time, we're also guilty of the same stuff. And I think with the pandemic, the parallels with how our governments have reacted is, is also very, very obvious. You know, the way that the denialism, the um, lack of uh, leadership, the uh, refusal to accept responsibility, um, 
the investment in, in private institutions and in private companies rather than, you know, working with, um, as we have the NHS here, or of course, you know, um, Medicare and Obamacare in, in the US. So I think there is very distinct and clear parallels. It's just everything in the US is slightly more amped up and a steroided version of what we have. But, you know, man, it's the same here. Unfortunately, I wish I could tell you it's different. It's just not quite as obvious and often not quite as brutal. Um, but the issues, I think, uh, are in here as well. And it's a big problem. Yeah, it's a good observation. I mean, I love I love London. Uh, I've been several times and, you know, it's a great city and it's a great place. And But you're right. I've always thought that about London. I mean, you just go look at the TV shows that are made about, you know, the UK and like what's like there's there's definitely or or just battles that have been fought and wars that have been won over I mean just look at history like Britain has by and large um they have a really big uh view of themselves oh, and yes. and and the United States just I don't know I'm not a historian so maybe this is like off track to say but like United States just got a bigger plot of land to be they they just they stole a bigger plot of land uh, to become who the United States is now. So we, we, we're bigger, we're louder. And, uh, you know, we, we, the United States thinks that they are the greatest place on the planet. And so that, that just doesn't help when it comes to like making changes, because if you believe, which this many so, mi tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in this country believe that this founding document called the constitution that we were built on, they believe it's this sacred, perfect, amazing document, right? And it's not. I mean, it starts with the three words, we the people, but it's very clear who those we the people were. It was white landowning men only. Women were not acknowledged in the constitution. Black people were not even seen as a full person. Uh, Native Americans were seen as savages. And so like we are still today lauding, touting, like heralding this document that was fundamentally flawed from the beginning. And so when you have a country that has that, big of a complex about uh, their superiority and their greatness. And they point back to this document and say, see, this is what makes us great. And you're just, I mean, there are so many of us here that are just like shaking our heads. And I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Guatemala, was born here, grew up in Guatemala, and then traveled the world for six, seven years full time, and then moved back here in my mid to late 20s, got married, kids, the whole thing. And it wasn't until I came back that I realized how much I didn't like the US. <laughs> Growing up in Guatemala, I was always excited to come back and visit, you know, like come back. It was like the United States of America, like all my friends in Guatemala loved the idea of America and, you know, the movies and the, all the stuff they see on TV. Then I came back to live and I'm like, shit, man, this place is fine and it's beautiful and it's great in so many ways, but it's not, it is not the greatest place on the planet. Like we have so many fundamental uh, issues that we've never addressed. Uh, I mean, we've even talked about ourselves as an experiment, right? That's the word we use. This is the American experiment. Well, experiments can go wrong. And I think this one has. Uh, and maybe the UK experiment, lot, it's a lot older than ours, but you know, the British experiment, maybe that's just the older something gets and the more sure of ourselves we get, like the harder it's gonna be to change things, right? Um, and we're gonna talk about some of that today because I think that's these fundamental, this fundamental lack of discipline lack of ability to look at facts and see things objectively causes us to not change, even when the data is super, super clear, right? Like, here it is. This is what's happening, whether it's big political ideas or animal rights and food yeah. 
and veganism versus, you know, uh, uh, omnivorous lifestyle. Uh, like the facts are clear in my mind. And it's like, okay, so what are we, what are we fighting with here? So I'm excited about this conversation. Um, before we get into Surge and and all the work that you're doing, I mean, your tremendous uh, social media platform, which I'm so excited to talk about all of that with you. Uh, let's get to know you for a minute though, because uh, I don't know anything beyond, I know that you're Ed Winters and the things you talk about, the things you teach, the things you mentor people in. And again, you're great, like the videos and stuff that you share online, but I don't know where you came from. And I also don't know what was your journey toward uh, realizing that a vegan lifestyle is the one that honors animals and the earth the most. So share some of that with us. Yeah. So yeah, it's a great question. So for me, I mean, like nearly everyone, you know, I, I mean, I've met vegans who were born vegan, but realistically it's a tiny, tiny percentage of vegans. So like most people, especially living in, in a Western country, I consumed a lot of meat, dairy and eggs every single day. And I was raised to believe that that was the way that I should live. I mean, We've all been there, haven't we? I remember being, I think I was about 11 years old. I was in an English literature class. We were studying a book and I can't remember exactly what the book was, but in the book, there was a vegetarian character. And so my teacher, I don't know why she asked this, but she said like, no, what do you think of, of vegetarians? And so I put my hand up in the air. I was quite, quite brash and uh, potentially slightly arrogant at that age. And my teacher was like, you know, yes, Edward, what do you think? And I said, well, all vegetarians are pale, weak and skinny. And, and I looked behind me and there's this girl called Natasha, who was vegetarian. And she looked at me and she was so angry. Like she had such like anger in her eyes. I remember being a little bit confused because I didn't realize I'd said something that was wrong. I was just really saying what I believed was true because that's what I'd been told. And I, I kind of reflect on that now and I realize just how ingrained these ideas are. You know, as children, we're raised with families, we're raised in a society and a culture that tells us that the way that we live is the best way. It's the only way. And anyone who does it differently should be looked at badly or looked, at, looked down upon. There's something wrong with them, something that they're not optimizing themselves. So I had a few moments growing up where I was, was, was kind of questioning that. But then when I was 20, nearly 21, um, I came across this story online in the BBC, and it was about a truck carrying 6,000 chickens crashing on the way to a slaughterhouse near the city of Manchester in, in Northern England. And I remember reading this story and being quite horrified because the journalist had said that hundreds of the birds had just died. They'd been crushed. You know, the impact had, had killed them. Mm. But there were hundreds more of these animals who were still alive, and they had like broken bones, broken wings, broken combs. And so they were mutilated and suffering, but they were alive. And I remember being quite horrified because I recognized that these animals could suffer. The fact mm. that I was feeling sorry for them was because I realized that they were in a situation of pain, suffering, and something that you know I, I empathized with as being objectively bad. But I thought, well, hang on a minute. If I'm realizing this about these animals, well, what was going to happen to them in the slaughterhouse? I mean, I've come across this story because the truck has crashed, but that truck was meant to go to the slaughterhouse and they were meant to be slaughtered. So am I a hypocrite for feeling sorry for these animals when A, the reason they're there is because I want to eat them and B, the reality of what would have happened to them anyway was also horrific and violent and came at the expense of their well-being, their life, their autonomy. You know, we, we grow up loving dogs and cats and we love these animals because we recognize so much within them. You know, we see them as individuals. We love them as individuals. We mourn them when they die because we recognize that their life has fulfillment. It has you know, to them, it has meaning. To us, it has meaning. But then all these animals that we disregard and who we just kill so needlessly and mercilessly, but they possess the same attributes that we look on so, you know, 
endearingly on the animals that we love as pets or companion animals. So I was forced to have a little bit of a day of reckoning with myself. And I was forced to say, well, you know, how do I justify what I do? How do I justify killing animals when I realize I don't need to? And uh, I went vegetarian at that point because I didn't know about dairy or eggs. I had no idea. I didn't really look beyond it. I just kind of had this realization I should stop eating meat. It's hypocritical. It goes against my values. I say I'm against animal cruelty. Yet I pay for cruel things to happen to animals. That's not acceptable. Then about eight months into being vegetarian, my partner was like, you know, we should watch this documentary, Earthlings. She'd seen it advertised on her Instagram. Someone that she follows had shared it. And she was like, we should watch this documentary. And I kind of knew what it was about. I knew it was about animal cruelty. I knew I had slaughterhouse footage. I knew it wasn't going to be a fun watch. And I'd said to her, like, there's no way that I'm going to watch this documentary. Like, that is just, it's propaganda. It's probably filmed by Peter or something. It's no good. Because even as a vegetarian, I thought vegans were militant. I thought they were extreme. I thought they were weird. I thought they took things too far. They had no sense of humor. They were, you know, just not good people. I had this idea. And I think looking back on it, I realized that these feelings I had towards vegans, even when I was a vegetarian, came out of a place of probably guilt, maybe a, like a, a realization somewhere within me that they were really just doing what I said I was doing, but properly. You know, they weren't just saying, oh, you know, I care about animals, so I don't, I don't kill them. They're saying, I care about animals, so I'm going to do as, mu as much as I can. You know, I'm going to take it as far as I can to help them. And that made me feel probably quite resentful towards them. Anyway, after a couple of weeks of my girlfriend being like, we should watch this, we should watch this, I eventually agreed to watch it with her. And so afterwards, the documentary's finished. It's about 90 minutes or so. And I, I'm crying because the, the film is really, it's, it's terrible. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's so horrendous and so horrific, but it's just so objective. And it's just so real, you know? Mm -hmm. You can't deny it. You can't turn yeah. away. We, we, we're so keen to try and deny what happens to animals. We're so keen to paint pictures of what farms and slaughterhouses are like and how rosy these animals live and, and ultimately die. But then when you see it for what it is, just so objectively, so bluntly, all of that facade is just destroyed. You know, the, the secrecy of these industries is reveals and brought me to tears. And so I had a, a companion animal called uh, Rupert. Rupert was a hamster. I bought, I bought Rupert for 10 pounds from a pet shop, which is just, is, to think of a living being costing 10 pounds, you know, it's not like $14 or something. It's just so, so crazy that life has such low value. Mm. But I bought Rupert for 10 pounds and, and, he was living with me and he'd been there for maybe a year or so. And I cared for him very deeply. So after the film finished, I went and got Rupert and he was sat on my hand and he was eating broccoli because Rupert loved broccoli. It was like his favorite food. And I remember looking at Rupert and thinking, wow, you know, he, he really does like broccoli. And because he likes broccoli, I'm recognizing that he has likes and dislikes. You know, he likes broccoli. He didn't like kale. He'd turn his nose up at kale, whereas many hamsters would, of course, you know, devour kale. So I'm recognizing there's so much individualistic about him, so much that makes Rupert Rupert, things that he doesn't do or does do that other hamsters do or don't do. And then I thought about the dairy cows and their babies. I thought about the egg-laying hens. I thought about not just the food, but the clothing, the testing, everything, the entertainment, the zoos, the circuses, everything. And I was thinking about all these animals suffering and inherently they're no different to Rupert the hamster. In fact, many of them are more complex, of course, than Rupert the hamster. And if I would never want any of these things done to Rupert, well then, my goodness, how can I justify any of these things being done to other animals who are identical to Rupert in every way that matters? And so after that, that was when I realized that being vegetarian is just not enough, you know? Meat, great, meat's a huge part of the problem. But to overlook the dairy and the eggs and then every other aspect of what we do to animals, to overlook that is to do an injustice to the very thing I said I'd gone vegetarian for, which was for them. So that was why I went vegan, um, 20... 
2015, yeah, in early 2015. So yeah, nearly six years ago. Um, that's that's kind of brought me to it. Have you uh, have you struggled at all with? Did you go through a stage? Maybe you're still. Maybe it's something you still struggle with. I don't know. But like, have you struggled with all with uh, educating versus judging people? Right? Because it it's 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 got to be easy. And I'm saying that as someone who is vegan as well. Like, mo- by and large, I don't feel judgment about people. I do want to educate them if they want to hear. I'm I'm all in to share what I know with them. But I have moments, I have stages, I have, you know, these moments where I'm, where I do feel very judgmental because I do think the case is pretty clear to at least like reduce it or, and I see people that here's, here's what's interesting to me. I don't know if you have a religious background. I'm a, I'm a Christian, um, admittedly a very reluctant Christian these days with what's, (laughs) what's happening in evangelicalism in America, but I'm, I'm a part of a, a group that by and large, does all that we can to love our neighbor, which is the command, right? To love those people around us. But I see a lot of people, the the ones I have the most problem with judging are those that do adhere to a faith that demands that they care for animals, that they care for the earth, right? Mm -hmm. They, they, They believe God, this, this higher power created everything for our good, and then we go and destroy it. And so for people that don't have a faith background and for a lot of them that do have the kind of this, this nihilistic doomsday future, you know, in their view, it's like, well, fuck it. Cool. I don't like, you don't even think this is going to get any better at some point. So I understand that. But then there's a whole bunch of people that do have this hope, or at least they say that they have this hope and, uh, and yet they treat everything like shit. Uh, all along the way, right? They're not thinking, oh wait, I, no, I mean, if I stop doing it and if I start doing this and stop doing that, that actually makes a difference, If especially if I can convince you and you and you and you to do it. So all that to say, like, I do struggle with judgment sometimes. How how do you process through that? So really, yeah, I mean, that's another great question. I think with judgment, I mean, we all get it and we get it with with so many different things in, in, in life. There's a butcher shop not far from from where I live. This butcher shop is supposed to be like a, high welfare, you know, they, they're traceable, you know, they really care about their animals. It's not some supermarkets, you know, that's nonsense. You know, the farms are the same, the, the slaughterhouses are the same, but the, the way they market themselves. And sometimes I see people who are queuing outside to go in and they'll have dogs on a lead. I can't help but judge those people. You know, I, I, I would love to, and, you know, maybe one day if I did it politely, it would be acceptable. I'd love just to stop and say, have you seen the contradiction in what you're doing here? You know, imagine if there was a dog, because this butcher shop in the window, the display window, they'll have pig's heads or they'll have a uh, ducks or pheasants or geese, and they'll just be hanging by their necks, you know, with their feathers on just the, the animal. And so it's not as if it's like hidden or it's not as if it's kind of like, there's just cuts of meat and you can try and detach from the animal. They have animals' heads and their entire bodies on display, you know, completely intact sometimes. And I just think, wow, the contradiction there is so overwhelming. I can't help but feel judgment, you know? And it's very natural. We all do it in all different ways. And it's not something to be ashamed of, although, of course, it's something we should be aware of and conscious of and um, and actively try to avoid it in in, in situations where it's, of course, um, not beneficial, which is often. I think for me, the, the way I try and rationalize it is, I was there. We've most of us have been there. Yep. You know, and we've all experienced that. We've all done it. I've fished before and caught fish. And, you know, I, I've bought animals in supermarkets. I've gone to these so-called like high welfare butcher shops thinking I'm doing a wonderful thing. You know, I've done all of the things that I judge these people for doing. And therefore I can't have any 
real ground to stand on to then point yep. the finger and proclaim that these people are somehow bad people or they're you know consciously doing immoral things when i recognize that i don't think i was defined as a bad person simply because i used to do that and i didn't i wasn't consciously trying to be immoral and i wasn't queuing up in the the butcher shop thinking gosh i can't wait to pay f- for this so another animal can suffer none of those thought processes go through your head and it's so normalized so i think if we can try and understand the mechanisms that encourage people to do what they do, the, the family upbringing, the social dynamic, the social stigma, you know, if their friendship group is not particularly vegan friendly and, you know, there's this a lot of social stigma there. You know, if you're a man and you, you know, go to the gym and you think you have that stigma there, there's a lot of different hidden pressures. And there's also a lot of different kind of cognitive biases and, and, and dissonance and these kind of imperfections, cognitively speaking, that we're all grappling with every single day. And if we can try and understand that there's there's this whole area of kind of unconscious or even often conscious things or attributes that are leading and driving us in our decision-making every day, it becomes increasingly more difficult to judge someone when you realize that we've also fallen prey to these very same things. We probably still do in many other areas. And these people aren't defined by these actions. You know, they're defined by how they would change if they were given that information and so that's why it's our job to educate to give people information to show people why buying these products isn't something they should be doing why for the future of our planet we have to stop doing this without education people are are ignorant and if they're ignorant they can't be held accountable if we've never given them the chance to to know or to learn or to understand we have to give people the ability and power to make their decisions by being given the full side of the story the full narrative the, the information that changed us and if we don't do that, then we can't judge someone f- for something they don't realize that they're doing or, you know, in many cases, not doing, which is helping animals. That's how I try and grapple with that. That's a great response. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I remember before we became vegetarian and then vegan, we had a similar a similar uh, journey as you did. I, man, none of it was, for one, I was not educated. I was just living in a reality that I had always known, which was just meats. I, I never liked a lot of meat. That is something that's true about me. Uh, there was one there was one thing I always indulged in. Uh, it wasn't even often, but when I did, I really loved it, which was chicken wings. You know, like here in America, like people eat like lots of, like the dudes go out for chicken wings and beer, right? And like once a month I would do that, but I rarely ever ate meat, but still it was just, it wasn't, it was still a part of what was going on. And um, it was only, it was only when I submitted myself to being educated and dropped those barriers that I started to, you know, make the journey toward, you know, vegetarian. And it was, and it was a pro, and it was a process for me. I remember, you know, when we, when I wasn't making a lot of money, when we were, I mean, by any, by any, by any definition, poor as a young married couple, you know, trying to get life going, we were just buying whatever meat right? What didn't care, didn't care if it was mass produced, didn't care if it was processed. We There was no thought of the animal. And then, you know, let's see, let me look at the dates here. And then, you know, seven years ago, we decided to, okay, that's wrong. Obviously we know enough now to know that's wrong. So let's go with, you know, like as, as you, I think the use the word, and maybe that's how you guys talk about it over there, the, the welfare, like high, what, how did you describe it? Yeah. Like a high welfare, high, high welfare, right? Like so whole foods. Five yes, steps exactly. Program. So we're, you know, we're doing this humanely and we're taking, you know, the animals are grass fed and blah, 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 and all this stuff. Right. So then we started, yeah, we started, you know, we got a bunch of friends together and we had, you know, a farm down the road 
they had healthy, like free range cows. And that's where we got our beef for the year, you know? And the same thing with eggs too. We went to a farm where it was like these, you know, we could see the chickens and now their eggs are here and all that stuff. We went through that for a full year. And then we were like, it's not enough. Like, it's not enough. It's not enough. We're still participating in it, right? And it was, again, it, it, it came as a result of me submitting to what I didn't know and not assuming that I knew everything about this whole this whole industry in this world. And so then we became vegetarian. That was five years ago. And then for, I always, so I have a wife, wonderful wife of 12 years and three kids that are six, seven, and eight. The, the, uh, the, the youngest, the boy, he's never tasted meat as far as I know, because he was vegetarian when, when he, when he was weaned off of breast milk and into like real food, we were already vegetarian. So he's never had meat. The girls, Never liked uh, meat all that much for the year or two that, that we weren't vegetarian yet. So they don't even remember like eating meat. Like they have this idea of it. But and, and, and I, throughout the last five years, have gone back and forth, vegetarian, vegan, vegetarian, vegan. And I always wanted to go full vegan, but I do most of the cooking in the house. And I've got a family that already is like all in on vegetarianism and but weren't so sure about like, what are we, there's like vegan cheese tastes like shit and we want like good pizza once a week or whatever. Like, you know, those arguments that you go through when you're getting there where it's like, okay, the cheese isn't right and this isn't right and that isn't right. So we can't go like full yet, you know, and honey, the kids loved honey on their, you know, their cereal or whatever. Of course we got the organic honey, blah, 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 but it was still honey at the end of the day. And then three months ago, we, we just all had a kind of heart to heart and it was like, I think it's time. Like, I'm not going to force you guys to do this. Like we're doing this as a family, but I think, I think it's time. What do you say? And um, they all jumped in and it's not been, there's been some, you know, we've had to have some conversations, but some disappointed family nights, you know, we used to have pizza every Friday. We still do homemade pizza. And now it's with, you know, we found a really great vegan cheese alternative and we're finding different ways to make it. And um, it's now getting very comfortable for everybody. But I say all that to say, it's been a journey. And the times that I have been able to stop judging people is when I remember my poor days and even my not so poor days when I was, in fact, my, the time when I mowed the, made the most money in my life, when I was buying all this like amazing organic free range meat and stuff. And I was able to afford that because it costs more. Like even at that point, like I wasn't, it's a journey. Like I wouldn't want somebody to look back and be like, Nick, you're a piece of shit. Like, look what you did to those animals all those years. So we've got to have that sort of empathy today. And then also kind of push people like in the right kinds of ways in the latter part of this conversation, I want to ask specific questions about, you know, these myths and these ideas that people keep feeding themselves. We got to push on those and say, that's not quite right. Like you're thinking this is the case. That's not the case. Let's dive into it. And hopefully some of them will respond with, hell yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about it. Um, so that's a great answer response to the not judging. Uh, surge activism. This is a, a huge part of your work. How did surge start? And uh, I mean, I'm super impressed by the work that y'all do. Um, what does what, what your work sort of entail? What, what's what's the goal of, of your group and what you're trying to do? Yeah, so we started back in 2016. So I, I've been vegan for about a year and then I set up a YouTube channel because I felt that I needed to do more than just be vegan. I saw the documentary Cowspiracy. Mm -hmm. um, I seen another documentary called Fox Over Knives. And so I was becoming so aware of all these different aspects of um, how a plant-based diet and how veganism can be beneficial. And yeah, I wasn't 
educating other people. And so I was allowing them to continue. And I thought I need to do something about this because I know all this information and I need to do something about it. In fact, there's a, like a, an analogy and the analogy goes, uh, there's a blind man walking down the street and at the end of the street, there's a hole. On the other side of the road, there's another person who's watching the blind man as he approaches the hole. And so if the blind man falls into the hole, it's the fault of the person who can see but says nothing. Mm. So, And I was like, well, you know, I know all this information. So in this analogy, I'm the person who can see. So I felt that I needed to do something. So I set up a YouTube channel and I started making videos. And then about four or five months afterwards, we decided to, me and a few friends at that time, to create an animal rights group. So me, my partner, and a few other people got together, created an animal rights group that we wanted to then you know, organize events and do different things to, to spread awareness about what happens to animals. So we started hosting an annual animal rights march and we started releasing investigations into farms. Um, we started um, kind of hosting events uh, where we do like food outreach, where we give you know, free samples of vegan food to people um, and to really try to do as much as we can. And then this year, because of the pandemic, we had to kind of reassess and change a lot because obviously all the street stuff couldn't happen. We couldn't hold a big mass gathering with thousands of people anymore. That couldn't happen. So we decided that we would focus more on creating online content. And so the direction we're moving in now is creating kind of, um, we, we kind of want to be like, so you know, there's Vox. And so they create a lot of content about politics, about social issues. We want to do something similar but for animal rights and, and the environmental aspects of a plant-based diet. So we're creating these like weekly videos that are trying to push and be more professional and, and very informative and very concise and, and easily digestible, but about hard-hitting and important topics. Um, and then moving forward, expand the team to, to become a bit more of a, a media-based organization that's producing more high quality online content, different areas centered around animals that's easily digestible, that's shareable, um, and hopefully ticks the boxes for a lot of people who are watching more YouTube or engaging more online or on Instagram and on social media more, who are looking for things to, to educate themselves about. Because obviously we live in a very exciting time in the sense of people are actively looking to be educated in a way that I don't know has ever existed yep. before. People are looking, they're scrolling, and it's not that just they're scrolling to see pictures of what their friends do. And I think a lot of time people are on these social media sites looking for something to interest them, looking for something new. And I think looking for something that's challenging as well. I think we, we do live in an era or a generation now where I think challenging conversation and discourse is becoming something that we, we really enjoy, maybe in a way that other generations before us didn't. Um, I, that's obviously due to like the heightened political divisions and all these different things. But I think there's also something positive there, which is people looking to be challenged about, you know, deep and interesting conversations. And so that's one thing we want to do with Surge is, is create the content that hopefully, you know, challenges the curious minded and, and gives them something that's hopefully um, beneficial for them to, to think through. Yeah, surge activism has grown quite a bit over this past year on online. Yeah. But so yeah. is your platform, Earthling Ed, on uh, Instagram and Facebook. What not, numbers aren't all that matters, but it does kind of it does give us a picture into what people are interested in, and also the job that you're doing, kind of communicating with people. I I think I just saw that it was at 500k. So congrats yeah. on on Instagram 500k on Facebook. I think 275 or 250 something like that. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, what was it, what, what, what were the numbers like before the pandemic and, and what's the journey been like growing on social media? I was, I was talking to, uh, June Diane Raphael. She's an actress here in the U S, um, yesterday about her 
organization, the Jane Club, that started in LA, and it was a physical space, a three-story physical space that takes care of women. Uh, the, you know, really, the women, the people who take care of everything in our lives, right? And um, it's great organization. Then the pandemic hit, and they've got this expensive space they had to let go of, and they went online and you know, the membership for their organization has, has skyrocketed mm. because now people, you know, you can, you can do things cheaper, right? Online. You, you don't have to, you know, these, these in-person events and marches and all that. Now we don't, we shouldn't get rid of those and we'll get back to those at some point, right? In this post COVID vaccinated world. But right now, uh, we have, we have an opportunity to grow our ideas and our platforms for a much cheaper price, not that there's a price involved with following you online, but for a much cheaper price to get it to more people all around the world, right? And so talk about the growth that you've seen and and what that's meant to you. And also like, yeah, what's the, what, what, why do you think it's growing? I know that like you said people are more curious and they're more ready to learn, but a lot of people haven't grown in the way that you have. So what's unique about what you in particular as the face of Surge and also what you and the team are doing right? Well, I think that's, that's a, that's a, a good question again actually um and one that requires a little bit more introspection i suppose i mean in terms of the numbers the beginning of this year on instagram i think it was about 320 so the growth has been really That's really sizable yeah. yeah and actually that happened right at the beginning before before the pandemic got really bad in in well, in the us and, and in europe so i think it was probably about february time when we were talking about it, you know, it was happening right. in China, it was happening in South Korea, and we were like, oh, is this going to be a thing? We were a little bit in denial. Well, we decided we'd make a video. And I remember um, I watched through the intro the other day, and the intro was like, there are, I think, just under 2,000 people have died so far. Wow. And it's just crazy to now think, well, we made this video, we were like, oh, COVID's pretty bad. 2,000 people have died, and now we're in the millions. Millions. Yeah, right. So it's pretty, pretty scary. But um, when we made that video, the purpose of it was almost... I guess it was almost a bit of denialism with ourselves. We were like, COVID's quite bad and all, but actually there's a bigger issue, which is antibiotic resistance. And so we used the coronavirus, what was happening to say, this is quite scary, but by the year 2050, we could have you know, antibiotic resistant bacteria that's you know, gonna kill 10 million people a year, you know, equal to the number of people who are dying from cancer. And the reason is because in the US, for example, 80% of antibiotics are given to farmed animals. In the UK, it's 50%. And so we're throwing away the miracle of modern medicine on keep, keeping animals alive just long enough so we can fatten them up and slaughter them. It's, oh, it's a scandal. It's, it's, it's a, a very, I mean, it's so, so silly. You know, we're putting our future on the line here for something so arbitrary like a bacon or something. But I think that video, because of the timing, it really resonated with people. It's when people started to get worried about coronavirus. Um, and so that really kind of pushed off and, and went really um, very well. Um, and then a little bit after that, I put up a post on my Instagram. Um, it's a little bit of a controversial post. Not, I mean, it became more controversial than I realized. It was basically saying that COVID-19 has come from eating animals. It's come from what we do to animals. We, we highly suspect it's come from this uh, wet market in Wuhan. But at the same time, we can't just point the finger at China and, and blame them because we have swine flu that's come from uh, pig farms in North Carolina. You know, we've had so, all sorts of different infectious yep. diseases that have yep. come from farms all over the world. And so we can't just point the finger at China. You know, we look at SARS, we look at MERS, yes, the Asia and Saudi Arabia. But then we've always, you know, BSE, mad cow disease, swine flu. Um, and actually, USA Today did a thing about that because it went quite viral. And they did a thing basically saying, oh, this guy on Instagram has made this post. We don't think it's completely true. They basically fact-checked it. 
And so I emailed them back um, and had a little bit of a discourse. And then a few weeks after that, The Guardian published a post or published an article where they referenced the post. And they were saying, actually, no, this is this is true. You know, we do have to look at what we do to animals. And yes, all these, you know, may, many of our major infectious diseases in the past century or so have come from what we do to animals. And after that, it started to become a little bit more of an interesting conversation where Vox were talking about it, the Washington Post talked about it, the New York Times were talking about it, not the Post, but the correlation between what we do to animals and, and disease and pandemics. Um, and I think that conversation, because I was talking about it quite early, that helped grow the platform because we were talking about these ideas um, in a way that I don't think people had thought about before. We talk about veganism, we often talk about the animal rights aspect, the environmental aspect and the health aspect. But this year, we've got a fourth pillar to why you should eat plants, right, over animals, which is disease. disease. Not just chronic disease, but infectious, you know, zoonotic disease. And I think that's resonated with people a lot. I mean, there have been a few different polls that have come out. In the UK, 20% of people reduced their meat consumption during the pandemic. In the US, plant-based sales have been increasing. People, you know, wanting to reduce their animal product consumption. And one of the major reasons they're citing is disease, infectious disease. So I think... The pandemic has given people a reason to think more critically about how they live. There's also the environmental aspect. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was all these wonderful images coming out of like nature healing, you know, all the dolphins are here and this is regrowing and everything, you know, the carbon emissions are decreasing over cities. And, and a lot of people found that very optimistic and very hopeful. And it showed to people how if we give the world breathing space, you know, literally breathing space, the world will heal at a very, very fast rate and nature will do its thing if we give nature the chance to. And so I think that idea that actually we've realized that nature can heal, life's very precious, it's very um, volatile and eating animals contributes not just the disease, but the environmental degradation. I think that's resonated with people quite a lot. So it's an accumulation of different things. I think that's all come together. And I think in terms of what Surge offers and what I as an individual offer, I mean, what we strive to do um, is in a way, I think, dispel some of these myths about veganism. You know, that those myths being that vegans can be militant, that vegans can be aggressive, that vegans are extreme. Now, I use the word, these words come up somewhat loosely because vegans are militant and I'm militant. But what I mean by that isn't that I'm going to be out there on the street, you know, threatening people, just that I will stick to it. You know, I'm determined yep. and devoted to it. Yep. And so we have these words that are quite interesting. But I think what we try and do is just seem just relatable, you know, hopefully just kind of like, I've been here before. This is my journey. This is what I've learned here, you know, is for everyone. If you want it to be that kind of thing. I think that hopefully is what resonates with people. Try not to be angry. Try not to seem judgmental. Try not to seem um, hopeless and nihilistic. And I think often vegans and people in general who become more um, caring about certain issues in the world can become misanthropic, can become quite disillusioned, can become quite, I suppose, depressed. And I think what, what we try and do is offer a version that's a little bit more hopeful, um, you know, and, and talk about empathy and compassion towards not just animals or not just non-human animals, but human animals as well. And I think hopefully that resonates in a way. I mean, on my YouTube channel and subsequently on my Instagram and Facebook, I post, you know, interviews I have with people, conversations I have with people. And um, even though know, people from all different, you know, a whole range of different ideologies, hunters, you know, people who might be tempted to go vegan, people who, you know, hate vegans, just trying, you know, Infowars. I had a debate with Infowars when I was in the US. Wow. Yeah, this woman, Millie Weaver, it was in Ohio or just outside of Ohio, in the state of Ohio, just outside of Cleveland, sorry. Um, 
And it was a, a really enjoyable conversation, even though ideologically we're pretty polar opposite, you know, but I think what resonated with people is the fact that we could have an amicable discussion where we weren't, well, I don't know if she was feeling the same, but where we weren't trying to one-up each other, we were just sticking to hopefully just rebutting each other's arguments. And, you know, I think I did it much better than she did. Although with someone that ideologically positioned, it's probably not always I, I I watched it. You did. Oh, good. That's reassuring. Thanks, Nick. That's it. Team Ed in that one then. So that's good. So that's, that's what I try and do, like have those conversations, but in a way that doesn't seem like I think I'm better than the person I'm talking to. Just that um, the information I have, the knowledge I have is what wins those arguments, hopefully, you know, just the facts, the objectivity of the situation. I think you're uh, spot on there. Two things I want to point out. One is the the uh, the empathy and the compassion in which, in, in which you communicate all of your ideas and your beliefs, right? Again, you're militant in those beliefs. You're not budging. You're not moving. But if you can, if we, not just you, if we all can figure out how to share what we know is true based on facts and data and history, because we've done one of my one of my one of the most abused phrases these days whether it's politics or animal rights or anything is i've done my research <laughs> i want to shoot that phrase right in the face and get it like gone forever because both both sides can say that right i've done my research but they don't mean the same thing mm. uh we have to we have to do like i've done my research for a lot of people especially like if i'm talking like the political sphere in the united states right now it's like well i you know I checked out OAN and Newsmax and Infowars and yeah. Breitbart and Fox News, and this is what they told me is happening. So I've done my research. I read these articles versus doing the long, hard, arduous work that you've done that many others have done, like really not just looking at what well, we want to be right. Am I right here? Is this the right view to take? That's going to be so important moving forward is to really actually do our research, which most people won't because it's hard work. It's hard yeah. fucking work. It takes time. It takes us at night instead of watching that next episode of whatever on Netflix, go read a book, go watch a lecture, go go look at the studies, look at the data. And most people aren't willing to put in that homework. So they mask their idea to research and like reading a few different articles on, again, animal welfare or whatever it is. Then they come out with these strong positions that just aren't backed up by science or data or anything. And so, but the important part, that I wanted to bring up, which is like cloaking that in empathy and understanding and realizing, again, going back to our conversation at the beginning, which was they don't know what they don't know. And they might be convinced of this, but I know they're wrong, but how can I tactfully, whimsically, maybe even like uh, get them to a point where they realize, oh, maybe I'm not right on this, right? So I think you do that super, super well. Even that uh, video that went viral a few weeks ago on milk, right? Which I wanna talk Mm -hmm. about and you know, the dairy industry. That one did super well. Why? Because you presented, yes, there were some graphic images in there that nobody wants to see, but like, you've got to, you've got to be faced with that also with, you know, it's actually hard. Like I just listening to your tone versus mine, I get accused a lot of times of uh, I'm that asshole because I can't (laughs) not get excited when I talk about things. Like I could be totally chill, man. I've had uh, just a really hard time becoming a really great parent, not because I don't love my kids and don't want to help them, but I'll be talking to them about something they just did in my face and my eyes are like this and I'm not upset with them. I'm just talking with them. And my kid's like, oh, like they don't know how to react to it. And, and my wife lovingly is just like, babe, look, go, go keep that same face. Look in the <laughs> mirror. You're scaring the shit out of them. How are they supposed to like engage with you if they're scared of you and they have no reason to scare me? I've never hit them. I've never done anything like that. 
but my face and my body, my body language, it's like, let's fight. And I'm like, I don't want to <laughs> fight. Well, your body's saying something differently, Nick. And so I think that's, you, 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 you do that really well. Um, so I, I applaud you for that. Um, and because I went too long on that, I forgot the second thing. It'll come back to me. But congrats on growing that online platform. I hope it continues to grow. I know it will because it's it's educating me. And uh, I've from your content, I've actually seen people. People in my life have been uh, transformed from. Uh, in fact, my little sister the other day texted my my wife and was like, "Hey, I just saw that you guys you know went vegan a few months ago." I've been really interested in it. Can you tell me more? And uh, Earthling Ed and Surge Activism was some of the links we sent her. And she's like devouring this stuff and is pretty convinced at this point that that's a jump she needs to make. My youngest sister, I'm one of 12, so I'm 37. And at the top end of the spectrum, she's 20. She's the youngest. And she's now making this decision for herself based on you know stuff that you're putting out. So I'm especially grateful for what you're doing. So keep keep up the good work, man. Thanks, Nick. I will. Thank you for sharing it with your little sister. That's so cool. It's great uh, yeah. to hear. What I'd love to do here for this next time together is I want to talk through some issues, some arguments, some rebuttals that people put forth. So we've talked about how you got here. We talked about Surge. Uh, we talked about, yeah, kind of essentially what you're doing for work. But let's get into some questions that I know at this point people are asking. I know not as well informed as you do, admittedly, but I know the answer to these questions and these kind of, yeah, these things that people kind of work through, but I'd love to hear your perspective because I think it'll be super helpful for people. Um, So one is the jump from a lot of people are willing to go vegetarian, Mm -hmm. but they're not willing to, they see it as like, it seems like really easy for them to go vegetarian. Okay, I like meat, but I'll cut that out, cool. But that jump from no meat to no meat, no dairy, no, you know, eggs and no honey, right? To go, if we're talking food, obviously there's other parts of vegan, like vegan, like clothes and all that stuff. But if we're talking food, it's that jump from from no meat to, oh, no, none of this, no animal products at all. That seems like a huge leap for them. And okay, so I, I won't go further on there. What what is What is your, what would you say to somebody that's that's stuck right there, that wants to go full vegan, but they're putting a lot of barriers up to like keep themselves from getting there. What would you recommend to them to, in terms of making that leap? You've already done the good work of going vegetarian. That's great. But helping them realize that's only part of the work if you truly care about these animals. I think, yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think firstly, trying to establish why someone's made that change. And I think whoever, you know, it could be health reasons, it could be environmental, or presumably animal rights reasons. And that's why most people go vegetarian, especially. Um, and so I think it's about trying to find out the reasons, the motivations for that change. Hmm. So let's take the animals because it's the most um, the most obvious one. It's the one that most people, I think, give up meat for. Although environmentalism, of course, is a big part of it. But let's go animal rights. So the the main premise behind being vegetarian is that we're against animals being killed. You know, We don't want animals being killed unnecessarily. Slaughterhouses are bad. That's, that's just not good. Well, the first thing to establish is, of course, that all dairy cows and egg-laying hens are killed. So and they're killed in the exact same ways, in the exact same facilities. So we have a problem here where being vegetarian is almost, it's a paradoxical thing because you're saying that you are against something, but still paying for that very thing to happen. And this isn't to not people that, that make that change. As I say, I went vegetarian um, before I was vegan. 
But vegetarianism shouldn't really exist as an ideology because the ideology that it says it's subscribing to, it isn't. So it's almost like, um, you know, I guess being a Christian, but not believing in God. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, you know? So it's, that's not to knock people. I think it's, you know, great people do that and are, you know, caring and, and uh, are taking those steps. That's not, not to knock people, but it's an interesting idea to think that why do we have this thing that still perpetuates the very thing it says it's trying to stop. So all mm. dairy cows and egg laying hens are killed. We don't often get told that. We don't often realize that. But I think in many ways, you know, the dairy industry and the egg industry is even worse. Yes. You take like a cow that's raised for, for their flesh, um, and comparatively, they live a much better life. That doesn't make it acceptable. But dairy cows, are, of course, are forcibly impregnated. They have their babies taken away from them. In the US, you know, there's lots of dairy cows that spend their entire lives inside. Um, Again, not that them being grazing makes it ethical, but there are different considerations at play. And of course, they're always killed, but they're killed after about four to six years rather than after about 18 months. So mm. the life that they live, which is often a very bad life, of course, just to put it lightly, is elongated. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's much longer. Yeah, it's like, would you rather, I mean, like, we talk about like chickens raised for their, for their flesh, they're around for six weeks. It's a terrible six weeks of organ failure, selective breeding, you know, huge growth, terrible, terrible pain six weeks. But egg-laying hens, they go through a similar process, 18 months. They don't grow as large, but their bodies are selectively bred to produce excessive number of eggs. They lose their feathers. They're prone to, you know, mice and uh, lice, sorry, and parasites, broken bones, and osteoporosis. And they're still killed in the same slaughterhouse in the same way. But instead of six weeks, it's 18 months. So you think, well, if you had to be one of these animals, which animal would you be? No one would choose to be the dairy cow or the egg-laying hen. We wouldn't want no. to be any of those animals, no. of course. But their their suffering is so much longer, and it still has the same fate. Still, they still meet the same knife at the end of it. So I think that's the important thing to recognise. And so people make this step because they obviously very caring, very considerate, and it's just about saying, well, look, if you really care about these issues, which of course I believe that you do, well, then logically to be consistent, that next step has to happen. Otherwise, we're living an inconsistent life. We're living out of uh, kind of like. Um, hypocritical it's paradoxical of course so i think that's a good way of doing it some considerations have to be put in place of course and i think that in the us and the uk it's the same we have a lot of good meat replacements the beyond burger right no one has a bite of the beyond burger and doesn't think it's delicious right you know right. It, it just is but when it comes to vegan cheese a lot of vegan cheese is not that good let's, let's be honest there are some really great brands but yep. it often is harder to find them. Sometimes you'll buy a vegan brand in the supermarket, you'll get home, you'll eat it, and you'll be like, this is not good. And it can be quite hard because cheese is notoriously hard to give up. Um, and a lot of us really like it. I used to as well. And eggs, well, we don't really have that many vegan egg products. You guys have got Just, of course. You've got you know, good mayonnaises and you've got the Just scrambled egg. We don't have that here yet. So I think that step to vegetarian is easier in every single way. And it gives you the blanket feeling like you're doing something. And of course you are, you're just not doing as much as you should, but it gives you the comfort of thinking, well, at least I'm doing something. So you take that easy first step and then convince yourself that that's enough because you're doing more than you could be doing. And then you get into that comfortable state. So I think it's about challenging ourselves, holding ourselves accountable. We talked, we've talked a lot about empathy and understanding, and those are really important. Um, but alongside that, there has to be accountability and responsibility. And so we have to have empathy for ourselves as well as for others. We also have to hold ourselves accountable as well as others. And so I think the part of that accountability is, as you say, going a bit further on that research, you know, not just stopping when you've seen what happens to, to meat, you know, animals that are raised just for their meat, going that extra mile, going that extra step, embracing the discomfort of it. You know, most things in life that are fulfilling and worthy are not comfortable. You know, everything we want to achieve comes 
often at the expense of doing something that's not the most comfortable that we could do. And the realization of what happens to animals is incredibly uncomfortable. The realization that we've paid for that and perpetuated that is incredibly uncomfortable. And the realization that we're still doing that, you know, it's, it's hard. But it's through these realizations and it's through acknowledging the discomfort that we go through for them that we can start to make really meaningful changes. And the, the plus side is when you go vegan, when you make that step, when you get over those barriers, you can be so proud of yourself because it's not the easiest thing in the world. I mean, it, it's super simple and it can be very easy, of course, but that doesn't deny the fact that there are barriers and things that make it, that make it psychologically more than anything a bit more challenging. So once you've done that, you can be proud of yourself to think, yeah, I've, I've done something really important for myself. I've proved to myself that I'm capable of doing something that maybe I didn't think I was. And I'm capable of doing something that, that was hard, but I've done it. And now I can achieve so much. And now I can go out and spread awareness. So I think that step to vegetarian to vegan is to go, I obviously care. I obviously want to do the right thing. I'm showing that through the actions I'm making now. But if I'm being really honest with myself, I know that to be in alignment with what I want or what I say that I want requires that extra step. And it might be hard and it might be challenging, but the rewards of that are so powerful because they're not just rewards for me, they're rewards for animals, the planet. You know, that's the thing about veganism is it's bigger than us. Social justice issues are often bigger than us. Yeah, Veganism is a great example. The actions that we make by doing this thing, it's, it transcends just benefiting us. And that's a wonderful thing to be able to acknowledge when you make that step. And I think that's why I would say, just believe in yourself, go for it. If you make mistakes, just brush them off, get back on the road, you know, try again. I, I've never put two and two together. So thank you for that. That, uh, vegetarianism is sort of a half-assed, uh, we've convinced ourselves that's a good idea, but as you're pointing out, the lives that dairy cows and hens live is horrible and it's much longer. Like that is, to me, again, if I can manage to say that empathetically and compassionately, like that's a very, that's very convincing, you know, and there's, and you didn't even mention like, and tell me if I'm wrong here, you know, when, when these, when male chicks are laid, right? They're immediately, uh, uh, I don't know what the, I'm, I'm failing to come up with the word. They're kind of Macerated. chopped up. Yeah. Macerated. Macerated. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Like literally right away as chicks, they're killed. They're slaughtered yeah. right away because they have no need for them on a dairy farm. And so when we, when we continue to sit in this, uh, uh, vegetarianism, we're actually a lot of times too, when, when you are a vegetarian, you eat more of these other things, right? Yeah, because those are your, like your treats, right? So like, oh, okay, I'm not doing meat anymore, but I still have eggs. So you eat eggs all the time, or yeah. I still have cheese. And so you end up consuming a lot more cheese. Um, and, uh, that, yeah, that's, that's super compelling. I love that. I, I, I need to figure out how to be better at communicating that because, um, I have lots of friends who, because of us have jumped from, you know, eating meat to vegetarian and they haven't quite made the jump, but I think there's still some prodding and probing that needs to happen there. Like, okay, as you, as you started out, what's the reason behind what you're doing? Because if the reason really is the humane treatment of animals, then you've got to go all the way or don't go at all because this step in the middle is actually causing, and, and, and you pointed out here in the United States, like it's a huge problem. I mean, I've, I've, let's 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 go into this then because i think this will this will feed into it we've got all these you know people that are even if they eat meat but especially i've seen this in the vegetarian world where they they look at something in you know the eggs free range or cage free right yeah. um they look at that and they say oh 
look at what I'm doing. I'm doing a better job or, you know, pasture raised, pasture fed, grain fed, no antibiotics, right? We see no antibiotics on something, right? And we think I made the right decision. This is a much better product, but the life that they're living, you know, it's not cage free and they're not like roaming around, right? They're not roaming around on an open pasture. Cage free means they're not stuck in a cage, but now there's hundreds of thousands of these hens like on this open floor in a dark sort of warehouse, right? And they're just tripping all over each other, shitting all over each other, bleeding all over each other. You know, when one dies, they stomp all over the other one. Like, and it's just, it's a different kind of horrific, right? So um, real quickly, talk to these people that are sort of in this in-between, not just with the vegetarian thing, but they're looking at these labels, free range. Like, give people a view into what's actually happening there with these labels where the people making, the, the people that are selling this food to us, whether it's an, an egg or a cheese or otherwise, they're putting that on there because they know what's happening in the world. They know what's happening in the world. People are waking up. People have more knowledge than ever, even though we're not completely taking advantage of that. And so they have to put, they have to slap these labels on it to keep selling their product, right? Right. Well, this is true. I mean, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. These, these labels are there to sell us what we want, so, you know, by and large, these companies know that if given the choice, we don't like animals suffering. We all, you know, ask anyone in the world, you know, do you think animal cruelty is wrong? You're going to get 99% of people saying, yes, of course, animal cruelty is wrong. So these industries are now having to package a product and sell it to everyone who thinks that animal suffering is a bad thing. So you have, they have to sell us something that we, that we want to buy. And so if, if the labeling was, this came from a hen who, yeah, as you say, is taken out of a cage, but is now in basically in one glorified cage. The barn is just one huge cage now. And there's tens of thousands of other birds in there. And this, this hen will have their throat severed in a slaughterhouse. That doesn't sound good. So if they give us a label, like free range is such a good example. And what's really manipulative about free range is the word free. You know, when you see a label like that and you see the word free, well, we know what freedom is. We know what the word free means. And so we put the definition of free and freedom onto those box of eggs, right? So the word free means, you know, living without exploitation, without suffering, living with personal autonomy, And so we think that these hens must have all the things that being free would entail. So living without exploitation, living living with your own personal autonomy, not having your life decided by someone else, living without needless pain and suffering, not being oppressed, basically, right? So we see those box of eggs and we think, well, these hens must live a, a great life. I mean, gosh, I wish I had such a happy life because, you know, we don't feel often very free in society, of course. And so... We think, wow, this box of eggs must have come from a wonderful place where the hens live a glorious life because that's what we're sold. You know, that's what we're told. But that's not the reality. I mean, like, as we already established, all male chicks in the egg industry are killed as soon as they're born in the US. They're ground up alive. In the UK, we grind them up alive. We sometimes gas them to death in carbon dioxide Mm. gas chambers. Mm. And that happens in all systems. So whether you're buying caged, cage free, free range, organic, all male chicks are killed in the exact same way because all the hens come from the same hatcheries. So all the male chicks are killed and all the egg-laying hens, they'll still be killed in the same slaughterhouses. You know, we buy organic, we buy free range, and we talk about like humane, you know, humane slaughter, humane. But these animals are killed in the exact same slaughterhouses that factory farmed animals. So the worst farms in the world, and quote unquote, the best farms in the world, send their animals to the same place to die anyway. And this is the thing I think is important is 
let's say that free range meant that these animals lived a, a really nice life. Let's say that the animals that we eat lived a really happy life and they, they, they genuinely enjoyed it and they weren't suffering. They got to keep their babies. They weren't mutilated. It was a wonderful life. In, in many ways, it becomes crueler to take that life from them because mm. that life is pleasurable and enjoyable to them. I think even if we give animals a wonderful life, we still don't have a right to kill them. We still have a right to, to, to kill them in, in any way. Even if we took out the suffering and just went and shot them, we're still taking someone's life when we don't need to. We wouldn't justify going and, and shooting a human. I mean, they might not be aware of it. They might be living a nice life. We're not justified to kill someone because of those factors. Let, let's say with dogs, for example, let's say I rescued a dog from a shelter. I brought them home and I gave them six months of the most wonderful life, the most perfect life a dog could ever have. And then I cut their throat. Well, what would people say to me? They'd be like, that's psychopathic. Like, how yeah. do you do that? I said, well, You're a horrible I gave human. them a good life. Yeah, I gave them a very happy life. No, they, they enjoyed their life. So what's the problem? And, and the problem is we're denying someone their autonomy. We're denying someone the right to live that existence. And so these labels don't mean anything. But even if they did, we're not justified to take that life at the end of it. And all dairy cows and egg laying hens will be killed in all systems because of course, there's not enough land, there's not enough space, there's not enough money. We can't just afford, farmers can't afford just to feed them. They can't just afford to give them all this land to roam around because when they stop producing eggs or stop being fertile and having babies, they stop producing the secretions that we sell. And so even in the most idealistic version of farming that we could possibly think of, there will always be death and that can never be justified. Mm. So I think these labels, they exist to sell us a product. They don't actually entail what we think they entail. But even if they did, it wouldn't make killing animals morally justified. Um, I think that's an important thing to, to recognize. But the word humane, just before we move on, just that word is really interesting that we use that word. I think in, in many ways, we have to take it as a very good sign that we have to use these words. The word humane means, you know, having or showing compassion or benevolence. So when we think about something like humane slaughter, well, what we're really saying is that that slaughter is compassionate and benevolent. Now, I don't think anyone in their right mind could say that needlessly killing someone who doesn't have to die and you know, who doesn't want to die, because another important thing to recognize is that these animals are not willful participants in their exploitation. You know, animals will escape when they can. And in fact, I uploaded a video tonight all about animals you know, trying to escape from slaughterhouses, from farms. These animals do fight for their freedom when they're given the chance to. And so they don't, they're not willful participants, and so they don't want to die, and they show that. Um, so I guess the word humane can't be used to justify the slaughter because it's not compassionate or benevolent. How can it be? So humane slaughter is an oxymoron, but we use that word because it makes us feel that it's a justifiable act. There's an ethical act. I care about these animals because I, I cut their throats in a compassionate way. That doesn't sound quite right, does it? Does it I, nope. I care about these animals, which is why I forced them into a gas chamber. I think that's benevolent. It doesn't line up. So we use these words because what they do is they hide to us something that we try to ignore, which is that animal suffering is something we do care about and is something that we find morally objectionable. So we use these words to try and mask the fact that what we find objectionable is what we support. Take away that facade, reveal the objectivity of what we do, and take away those, those false labels, those false descriptors of the action. And all of a sudden, what we see is something that we find morally reprehensible, you know? And I think that's what I would say about labeling, you know, just look beyond the label. And, and as, he, as you said, again, what does that mean? Have a look online. What's that footage showing? There's plenty of footage about all these different systems of farming and watch it. It's not easy. It's not comfortable, 
but we owe it to them. You know, we pay for this to happen. So the very least we can do is watch it. Yeah. I would say if we pay for it to happen, we should be the ones who, who are able to do it. I mean, that's another thing, isn't it? That we pay someone else to do it. And these people in slaughterhouses, this is why veganism is a human rights thing in many ways as well, because people in slaughterhouses, especially in the US, yep, yep, low income migrants, you know, who are exploited, um, who are abused, you know, they're victims of this system as well. It's a different type of victimization, but a victimization nonetheless. We pay for them to do it because we don't want to do it ourselves, And because no one wants to do it, we give it to the most underprivileged people in society. The people who are desperate for money, people who need to support their families, people who need to feed themselves, who will do anything they can just to be able to fulfill the basic requirements of, of life that are necessary. They're forced into these environments because it's not something that any of us would want to do. And to me, that again, is it's immoral and it's scandalous because everyone involved in that system, apart from those who profit from it, everyone involved suffers. Even, yep. even to us, the consumer, the illness it gives us, the environmental degradation it causes. Unless you're right at the top of the system making money from it, everyone else, human and non-human, suffers as a consequence of what we do to animals. And when you frame it in that way, to me, I think that's just like, wow, you know, even as a consumer, we're having our integrity compromised. We're having our um, morals conflicted. What I mean by this, is these industries align to us. They're manipulating us. They're selling us a product that we wouldn't want to buy if we knew the truth behind it. So they give us glitzy advertisements and they lie to us. And so even as consumers, again, the victimization is, is obviously very, very different, but we're victims of corporate propaganda. We're victims of people that are trying to make money at our expense. Hospitals are filled with people with colon cancer, hormonal cancers like breast and prostate, heart disease, having strokes. People are dying because these industries are selling us a lie and they're not telling us the full story. Just in the same way that the oil companies like you know, yep. ExxonMobil, they knew about climate change. They've known about it for decades and they've lied to us. These industries have known for decades the damage that their industry causes and they've lied to us. And thankfully that lie has been found out but the damage is still being done. And, and I think we have to look beyond, don't trust what the industry tells us. We should know by now that these corporate industries, these you know, heavily capitalistic industries that have huge amounts of money and, and lobby to politicians, we know now that they shouldn't be trusted. And so those labels are just an extension of all the secrecy, all the lobbying, all the, you know, the deceitful stuff they do. Those labels are just the thing that we see in front of us. And it reveals to us a lot when we recognize those labels are there to manipulate us fundamentally. There's so much in the last segment that you just shared. Um, man, it makes me so sad. Like I'm, I'm genuinely sad right now just thinking about the state of things. And you're so right that to hit on the, the last point that you just made about the, I mean, the almighty dollar or the almighty pound, you know, it, it dictates those that are in power, those that have worked their way into power um, through a variety of means over the years, they are only interested in making money and exploiting people, mm -hmm. places, and things. And you know, we're animals, and so we're talking human animals versus animal animals, and exploiting everybody so that they can make more money. And they don't, they honestly don't give a shit about what happens to you. I mean, you just hit on a bunch of stuff from, you know, I have, I, I live in Nashville right now. Uh, not for much longer, but he, we've been here for a couple years working on some stuff. And I have refugee friends that have come from uh, the DR of Congo that have come from all over the place that when they come here, they don't know the language, 
they don't have a job yet. And what's one of the first jobs they get here in Nashville in particular? They have to work at the Tyson Chicken Factory. And so they get sent down there to do, and imagine what it's doing to them. I mean, they're they're told, get to America, get to the United States of America. It's the land of promise, land of freedom. It's the land of blah, 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 blah. And everything will be okay for you. Like you can you can work your way up there. You can make it happen there. And they get here and they get a sort of wel- warm welcome. And then they get thrown into a minimum wage uh, chicken processing plant. And I mean, imagine the mind fuckery that is happening there. Like how messed up they they must be from doing all of these jobs that, as you rightly pointed out, anybody in their right mind would never choose to work there, choose to murder, you know, uh, male baby chicks by the millions, would choose to see these animals suffering day in and day out. That's not a choice they're making. They're doing it because they have to. It's the only way to survive. And the people that are profiting in those industries, they're not going to, they're not spending time in those factories. They're not spending time in those warehouses. They're sitting in their, they're sitting in their nice offices, uh, never, never seeing what actually takes place, you know, just kind of like Scrooge McDuck, just like swimming in their gold coins, right? In their vault. Like they just, they're benefiting from, uh, these horrible, horrible acts that are happening. And the last thing that I'll say from your last segment is the health the health aspect which we could spend hours on right like people with a plant based that eat a plant based diet or or just you know plant based things no meat at all you can see the effects in their lives you can see how much you, whether it's cancer and you mentioned a bunch of other diseases like meat because we're trying to make it we're trying to make it quicker and bigger and faster we have to pump it full of all these different antibiotics and all these different things, things that were never intended to go into our to meet ever. And we're getting sicker and sicker as a people because of these things that we're eating. It's just horrific how, how those in power are exploiting everybody underneath them. And then the other horrific part is how we are willing participants. Because if people weren't buying the meat or the eggs or the milk or the cheese if we just said we're not bu- buying that anymore yeah the, those in power would wouldn't be able to make the money they were making before so we it's kind of a both and yes those in power need their need a kick in the butt and they need much more than that to realize how much they're hurting people and they need to be they need their power stripped away because they're not using power well in that in this situation but then those of us you know as uh um, consumers, we need to take it a lot more seriously. They're answering the demand from the public. They're growing chickens in a few weeks so that we can have these humongous chicken breasts, right? They're, so that we can have these big eggs and we can have lots of eggs. They're growing it that fast. Why? Because we want it. We buy it. We go to the grocery stores and we buy it. So it is a system that needs to be fundamentally interrupted from the top all the way down right? Yeah. It's, it's super wild. So let's, 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 let's talk to a different uh, person right now. And this person is someone who does realize that the industry is super fucked up, but they still want those things, right? And so they go hunt. They have chickens in their backyard. They're trying to do it right. And I'm saying that in quotations just because I know better than that. Um, But I still want to involve people in this conversation that are there. They're saying, but, but I'm doing it right. Like I go out and find a deer and I kill the deer and, 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 and it didn't go through any of that. I, 
I, I killed it. I skinned it. I harvested the meat. I did all of that myself. Or like so many people here in Nashville, all these like, you know, these woke people that have chickens in their backyard for chickens. Yeah. You know, what they don't realize is that chicken, that hen all on its own would only lay a few eggs a year left to itself. But if the chicken lays an egg and then it's gone that next morning, the chicken's body says, got to make another one quick, lays another egg, it's gone the next morning. So I don't know the exact numbers, but what would a, just taking that that free range backyard chicken hen, for example, how many eggs would a hen lay all by itself, left to its left to itself, versus when it's in a nice backyard where a family is using those eggs each and every day? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, there's I think there's two things to establish um, with the backyard eggs. Things firstly, let's say um, that you're buying them from a backyard uh, kind of uh, dealer. Sometimes because a lot of people won't have necessary hens themselves, but they'll still buy from someone who they, you know right. has the backyard. Um, idea. Those people still kill those hens at the end of the day. You know, they're, they're very small versions of, of uh, commercial egg production. So the issues will still often be the same. So it's something to be aware of because sometimes we'll drive, I, I sometimes I'll be driving through the UK countryside and I'll be like, you know, buy a half a dozen eggs for a couple of quid from this wonderful place. But the same issues still exist just on a smaller scale. But even if you, if you have the hens yourself, you raise a really good point. And now we've selectively bred hens to produce about 300 to 320 eggs a year. So pretty wow. much one a day, right? Now, obviously these animals have been selectively bred. Now the animal that they have been bred from would only lay about 12 to 20 in a year, about two clutches a year, so about wow. 12 to 20. So you can see what we've done to their bodies. Now that, that biologically, they've not really changed that much, except now they're producing 300 to 320 eggs a year. That takes a huge strain on their body. The shell is made entirely of calcium. Then you've got all the nutrients inside, of course. That's been leached from their body. So one of the things that as vegans, we often say to people is to feed the eggs back to the hens. You know, Let the egg stay with the hen because you say hens get very broody. Even though the egg's not fertilized, they're acting out a natural behavior. And that's an important thing to let them do. But also feed the eggs back to the hens. It allows them to replace those lost nutrients because one of the biggest problems that hens face, well, there's a few of them, but one of them is osteoporosis because they're leaching so much calcium every sure. single day. But another is because of the, you know, the excessive egg production, when the nutrients are depleted, what that can do is it can stop the shell from forming properly in their reproductive system. And so that can lead to um, things like E. coli inside because the egg shell is not formed properly and it, it creates um, leakage from the yolk. And also the eggs can get stuck in their, in their reproductive system. Um, so those are really big issues. One of the things that is really important um, for hens is because we've selectively bred them and has such a big impact on their body, we can actually stop their reproductive system by giving them horm like a hormonal implant similar to a human's. So this is what we have to establish with the backyard, with the backyard hens thing, is why do we have the hens in the first place? Now, if I said, let's again use a dog example, because it's, it's such a, a classic example. Right? If I was to rescue a dog and or buy a dog, whatever, acquire a dog, and the reason I got that dog is because that dog was lactating. And so I wanted to take the milk and drink the milk from that dog. People would think that was really weird, right? Mm -hmm. like, well, mm -hmm. The reason you want a dog is to give the dog a good life. You want them in your family. You want them as a companion. You want, you know, to do fun things. They're a dog. But when we get hens, people are getting backyard hens not because they want to enjoy the company of the animal or because they respect the animal. They're doing it because the animal produces something for them, an egg. 
we're viewing the animal as a resource, not as an individual, not as, a, as a, an autonomous individual, which is how they should be treated. So we have um, an issue where if we want to create a, a better world, and that better world means more respect of animals, we have to fundamentally change how we view animals. We view these animals as products, as resources who provide something that we want, but that's not what we should be doing. We should be viewing them as individuals whose right to life exceeds what they produce for us because they're not producing those eggs for us. Now, look, are people who have their own hands and taking back eggs, does that reduce suffering than buying eggs in supermarkets? Of course it does. That No, I'm, I'm not going to say that morally those hens are suffering in the same way as a hens in a cage or those hens in a barn. They're not. But I think what the backyard egg thing really establishes is that view of animals. And that that's what veganism challenges. It challenges how we see animals. Now, let's get a little bit abstract. And let's say that we have a world where there's no commercial farming anymore. But what we all have are backyard eggs. Not, well, not all of us, but like maybe one person in the neighborhood has some hens. And so they're eating those eggs and then the neighbors start to realize they're eating those eggs. And those neighbors are like, this is a great vegan world. I really like it, but I also would quite like to eat some eggs. And so the neighbors start buying the eggs. But the person who owns the hens realizes, well, they don't have enough eggs to give out. So I need more hens. But I only have a certain amount of space in my yard. So I'm going to get more hens. But having more hens compromises the space that I have for the hens I currently have. So that starts to compromise their well-being. And then you start to think, well, actually, I can't just feed them myself. I need to get money if I'm going to feed these hens. So people who want the eggs are going to have to buy them, right? So then you start to build up. And slowly over time, this is abstract, but slowly over time, what you do is you start to build up into small small egg farming systems again, hmm. because we haven't challenged the idea that these animals are not a resource. So I think veganism is transcending just the suffering in farms, is transcending just the killing of these animals. What it's fundamentally doing is challenging how we view animals. And in the same way that we don't view a dog's life as being dependent on what they produce for us, because they don't have to produce anything, the hen's life shouldn't be based on that. And we don't have to eat their eggs. So it's more beneficial for their well-being if we give them a good home, of course, have them as pets, companion animals. That's no, no issue. But give them back their eggs for the nutrients. Let them be broody. Let them display their natural behaviors. And if we can, take steps to reduce their egg production by, as you say, not taking their eggs away from them. That can help reduce their egg production. And if we can give them some hormonal implants so they stop that, so that they're the main risk factors in their early death is eliminated. That's what we should do because that is what has the animal's best interests. And that might mean we don't get the eggs, but that's not the point. The point is what is the best thing for the animal in that scenario and keep letting them keep their eggs and doing all these things I've just described is, is the best thing for them. Um, and it challenges that mindset that we need to challenge. That's what I think. And, and, and what about hunters? Because hunters. I, I don't know, I don't know the hunting scene in the UK. I mean, I know I've watched Downton Abbey and they did their like quail hunts and shit like that. But here, hunting is a huge, huge thing. Yeah. And again, a lot of people that care for the earth hunt. They fish, they hunt, they go get their own stuff. And to me, it's still like, on the one hand, hunting doesn't sound like fun anyway, because I've always been kind of I've always cared about animals, but even beside that, it's like you sit out here for hours, like maybe to get something that just seems like a colossal waste of time. Um, people have, it's become a sport and it's become a pastime. And it, it seems like we haven't broken out of this mindset uh, that, that existed, you know, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years ago, you know, when humans had to be hunter gatherers, they were on the move all the time. They were hunting and gathering whatever they could. 
plants, animals, whatever they could find, they had to get that because that was their only, A, they didn't know any better. Well, there, there was just no wherewithal about like, what does this mean? What are the nutrients I'm getting? They were just literally trying to survive. We're not there anymore. And that is a hard mindset shift. Like I, I still think with hunting, it's a lot of leftover like, oh, it's good. Like it's it's good for me. And I feel like a man and I feel like good about myself that I can go do it myself. Yeah. Again, I don't understand that mindset, but but additionally, how do we convince people that we're no longer hunter gatherers? That's not our situation anymore. Like we can find the right foods from the right sources and we have so much more knowledge now that the, you know, early versions of Homo sapiens didn't have. They were just literally trying to survive. We're not trying to survive anymore by and large. So many of us have options before us now. We can go choose what we're going to eat, when we're going to eat it, how we're going to eat it. And so, yeah, with hunting, like how do you communicate with people that uh, enjoy hunting and see it as the best way to live and to gather meat and to sustain ourselves through the sport of hunting? Yes. Um, there's, there's a few ways of looking at it. Um, it's, in the UK, we do have hunting. Uh, we have fox hunting, but it's not done for food. It's purely done for pleasure. And um, it's such a, Ugh. yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very transparently terrible thing. Um, but we do have like pheasant hunting, quail hunting. So yeah, there's a, there's a few different examples of it, but it isn't culturally, I don't think quite the same. Um, although we know we do have deer hunting and such as well, just sure. on a small right. scale. I think interestingly about the hunter-gatherer stuff, there's the, the new David Attenborough documentary, Life on Our Planet, and he actually talks about when, I guess it must have been in the 60s or 70s, he visited um, like a tribe of hunter-gatherers in some area in the world, I'm not sure. And what was interesting about that is he said that they mostly plants. They'll eat animals when they can get them, but their diet is mostly plant-based. Wow. And I think that's something we have to realize is we talk about hunter-gatherers, but the way the hunter the hunter prey situation exists in nature is you're not guaranteed to kill the animal if you're right. a hunter. I mean, the actual success rate of hunters is is, is low. So even when we were hunter gatherers, we were eating mainly plants, mainly plants, especially especially because they because they were everywhere and there was no guarantee of the animal. But you look around yeah. and there's plants everywhere, right? Exactly, and you'd have to. There was no danger to getting the plants. You know, you right. could go and pick them and have your fill as much as you possibly could. So that's an important thing to establish. But anyway, I think. The arguments that hunters use are, are interesting arguments. Um, they try and use these arguments, I think, often to try and hide the very basic principle that they enjoy it. You know, hunters enjoy hunting. Again, hunters don't go out and they're not um, with the gun in the bushes, dreading the moment the deer walks across their scope. But the, the arguments that hunters use are arguments about sustainability and also about compassion towards animals. They say, well, it's, it's more compassionate to do it this way. I, I've heard hunters say it's more compassionate than letting um, a, a a hunter in the wild kill a deer. You know, it's better to be shot than to be killed by a wolf. But those arguments are trying to mask the fact that they enjoy it. If we were doing these things for altruistic reasons, we wouldn't find pleasure in it. You know, we would be mourn the death of the animal. We wouldn't, you know, be excited when we get to kill. So, but the sustainability thing is an interesting one. Often people point to the fact that deer overpopulating is a, is a reason to hunt them, especially in the US. There's, first thing I would say to try and destabilize the mentality behind that is when we talk about sustainable meat, the most sustainable meat that we could consume would be stray dogs and stray cats. Hell yeah. Yeah, they're so, everywhere. Right, exactly. And so if, we want, if we're talking about sustainable meat and hunters care about overpopulation, then really we should be hunting the dogs on the streets, you know, whether it's in the US, or in Romania, there's lots of stray dogs, Mexico. That would be sustainable. But of course, hunters 
wouldn't do that. And we would find that to be morally reprehensible if someone was going down the street to kill dogs so they could eat them and said, well, it's sustainable because there's too many dogs on the street. We don't have the mentality of let's kill them. We have the mentality of, well, we should try and do what we can to help them rehome them. Not that we could rehome deer, of course, but the mentality is, well, why would that be different? It wouldn't be. You know, sustainable meat, go to a, an animal shelter, right? And pick out the animal that you want to be killed. And we go to restaurants, we pick out lobsters in a tank, we'll go to an animal shelter and pick out the dog, you know? We don't do that because that would be a terrible thing, but morally it's the same. But the sustainability argument, what's interesting is we have to try and work out, well, why is there an overpopulation of deer, for example? Well, the reason is there's no predators, right? We've hunted the majority of predators to extinction or at least decimated their numbers substantially, which has allowed for certain populations of herbivorous animals to thrive and as a consequence, mm. um, overpopulate. Well, why has that happened? Well, fundamentally, the main reason that's happened is because of animal farming. So in the US, for example, 50% of contiguous land in the US, so that basically involves all the land that isn't Alaska and Hawaii. So 50% of, of, of mainland America is for animal farming, just under 50% animal farming. Wow. Now, the big problem with that, obviously, is that's a huge amount of deforestation, habitat erosion and such, which creates less space for wild animals to live. There's lots of biodiversity loss. But because we have grazing animals like sheep or um, you know lambs, also cattle, chickens, these predators would kill livestock, livestock, the animals that um, farmers rear. So that is a bad thing for animal farmers. And so animal farmers, with the help of the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, hunt animals and have done for decades, centuries. Hunt and kill these animals to protect profits. So what we have is a situation where because we exploit animals, we've then killed so many wild animals. And because we've killed these wild animals, we have a situation where there's too many of some wild animals. And so now humans think, well, we have to kill these wild animals. Well, if we want to solve the problem of overpopulation, then take out the animal farming, rewild those landscapes and reintroduce natural food chains and food systems. So let's take Yellowstone as an example. In Yellowstone National Park, there was a huge problem where there was no predators because they'd been hunted to extinction. So then there was a problem where there was too many deer, there's too many herbivorous animals and they were being destructive to the landscape. So they, what they did is they, they banned hunting and they reintroduced wolves back into Yellowstone. And as a consequence, the biodiversity there is thriving mm. and the food system and the food chain exists harmoniously like it has done for millennium because that's how nature mostly works out, right? So let's take, let's do what we did in Yellowstone or what, what you guys did in Yellowstone and recreate that on a bigger scale. Take our animal farms rewild and restore as much of that land as possible back to nature, reintroduce natural food chains and food systems, and the problem will balance itself out. The hunting for overpopulation is like putting like a, a Band-Aid on a cut artery. Sure, it'll help a tiny bit, but it doesn't deal with the root cause of the problem, which is why we're in this situation to begin with. So we have to think a bit bigger. But again, I, hunters aren't just hunting because of overpopulation, because hunters will kill bears and they'll kill all sorts of different animals. Yep. Um, they do because it's enjoyable fundamentally. Um, and I think we have to challenge the idea that killing animals is something that's a sport, something that's enjoyable. Another thing that hunters will say is that they, and this annoys me greatly, is when they say they have a, a deeper connection with nature. I know Chris Pratt, the actor, um, put up yep. a thing about how as a hunter, he has this deep spiritual connection. And I, I think it, I, I find it disturbing that yeah. the only way you can enjoy nature is by hiding to kill one of nature's beings. You know, it doesn't make sense to me. We can enjoy the natural world and enjoy nature without a gun and without a blood first, you know? So I think that 
there's a lot to be said about ecotourism, about rewilding landscapes and about finding our place within nature, not with guns, but just through creating a more harmonious ecosystem. So challenging those ideas is important. Um, but yeah. again, understanding, look, again, morally, I think there's an interesting argument to be made that it's it's more ethical to kill an animal by hunting them than it is to buy factory farmed meat. That doesn't mean the hunting's justified but the logic that people use you can understand the logic that exists yep. there it's just about then saying well actually there's, a, there's an even more ethical thing you know substantially more ethical because what happens with animals is we start to use terms like i just did more ethical or less cruel but what we have to be asking is what is objectively ethical and objectively not cruel and hunting could be argued to be more ethical or less cruel but it's not objectively ethical and not objectively not cruel whereas of course rewild these landscapes, return, return the land as much as possible back to nature. And dealing with these problems more naturally is, is a much better solution long-term. And so if hunters care about these issues, well, then let's solve the issue. But the problem is often these issues are, are, are used as a facade. Um, that's, I think that somewhat deals with it. Yeah. But again, it's, it's taking life, you know? We, we yeah. don't need to do it. And we wouldn't, we only justify it with certain animals. We, we don't, you know, people that kill whales or kill dolphins, we don't say that's yep. ethical. People who kill uh, dogs or cats, we don't say that's ethical. You know, people who hunt lions, remember Cecil the lion? Yep. That was a terrible thing, right? But, well, morally, what's the difference? There yep. isn't a difference. It's just deers are killed in our culture, lions, whales, dolphins, dogs, cats are killed in other cultures. And so we have this cultural, um, cultural supremacy where we view our culture as being so much better. But morally, what we do to animals is comparable within every culture almost, you know, and so challenging that. Yeah, we're just playing games, right? That's all we're doing is playing games. I mean, there's a, I forget which which uh, country in Asia where they have that like festival once a year where they like boil those dogs alive. Yeah, it's China, is it? Yeah. yeah. And, and we look at that and we're like, fuck, like that's horrible. And I'm like, yeah. no, 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 no. To get the egg that you just ate, they, they, they chopped up millions of baby like recently born baby chicks right and so we've got to again it's a it's a matter of like i think integrity and consistency yeah. in our belief system like we can't believe that that's horrible and i think that's horrible you shouldn't boil dogs of for course, fun yeah. right it's yeah. it's horrific like i saw yeah. a video and i literally threw up after i saw it it was so horrible yeah but you can't say that's horrible and you can't say the people that are killing whales is horrible right there's whole documentaries you know written about the whales and and all the stuff. And there's so many people that are against, you know, the big five in Africa. I have friends, yeah. not really friends. I knew some people growing up that were very wealthy and they would go to Africa to different countries in Africa and they would, they killed all those animals. Right. Like, the, and we look at that and say, it's horrible, but then we participate in here in different ways. Like it's, again, it's yeah. all games that cats and yeah. dogs and whales and lions and tigers and bears is bad, but chickens and cows and all that is fine. It's just, it's games at the end of the day that we have to, we have to, I think we have to, if we're going to keep eating meat or not me, but like if people are going to keep eating meat, they have to at least recognize that I am playing games as I figure out what's good and what's bad, what's white and what's right and what's wrong as I continue the same lifestyle I led before. Yeah. And, you know? and, and, and we, in slaughterhouses, animals are boiled alive where we live. I mean, you can look at, people can look it up if they're interested, you know. Pigs are boiled alive because there's scalding tanks and the animals that aren't killed properly during the process will be put in these tanks. And so, Ugh. yeah, chickens will be boiled alive. You know, pigs are boiled alive. So, yeah, this isn't to take away what happens in Newland and what happens to dogs and cats around them is objectively grotesque and immoral and wrong. It, it, that doesn't deny their suffering. It's something we should all be angry about, of course. But again, the very issues that we are angry about and the other side of the world are happening on our doorstep as well. It's just 
it's marketed differently, it's labeled differently. And culturally, we've convinced ourselves that it's different because, oh, these animals are bred this way. We've always done this. It's, but as you say, take away those justifications we have. We are playing games. You know, we're playing mental gymnastics, yep. you know, trying to condemn one thing, but also try and not condemn what we do. It's cognitive dissonance, right? And that's, that's yep. how we live with it. The, the meat paradox, as it's referred to, the cognitive dissonance of what we do to animals. We're against animal cruelty, yet a pig is in the gas chamber right now because we want to eat bacon. We're against animal cruelty, but a male chick has been thrown in a grinder as we speak this very second. You know, that's cruel. Object that's anyway, cruel. We all know that's cruel. It is. It's just about coming to terms with that. It's important. This is a huge topic, obviously. You have been so gracious to give us uh, an hour and 40 minutes at this point. Um, yeah. I, could, I could talk with you for hours and hours and hours. Maybe we'll do a round two in a year or something. I don't know. But before I let you go, and again, thank you so much for your time. One question. Um, if I was able to say, Ed, I believe in what you're doing so much that I bought you a billboard in every city and community in the world. Everybody gets to see your message but you can only put one message on the same billboard everywhere. Uh, what would be your sort of, yeah, the message that you would wanna share with everyone? Again, this is regardless of culture. This is a message that has to be one that can, you know, in, in very metropolitan cities, in rural communities, like this is a message that would apply to everyone as we think about these issues. Wow, that's really hard. I think, I think, I guess what I, the angle I would take, and I, I won't be able to speak. Yeah, that's fine. Don't distill it into like the message, but what would you want to communicate to them? It can be sort of the idea. Yeah, individuality. Um, I think we have an issue where, um, because we kill animals on such a massive scale, uh, and we refer to them as things like livestock, we give them numbers in their ears, you know, we remove the fact that they are individuals. You know, even the fish in the oceans, I've just uploaded the podcast talking about fish with a, an animal behavior expert called Jonathan Balcom. And he talks extensively about how amazing fish are and the, the things that they do, even mm. the smallest of little fish in the ocean do things that we wouldn't even believe that they'd be able to do. So individuality, these animals, each and every one of them exists as their own individual. And as you and I and everyone listening, our version of reality is unique to us. There are objective truths, of course, but what I mean is there's fears that we have, there's insecurities that we have, the way that we see the world, the thoughts that we have, all these little things are what define us as being individuals, our likes, dislikes, music, all these different things. Right? Now, the animals are very, very different to us non-human animals. They're not the same, but what makes them worthy of moral consideration is those individualistic tendencies, those traits, those character traits that they all have, those likes, those dislikes. The fact that to them, the, in the same way that the world to us is viewed from the constraints of our body and our mind, is the same for them. And so every second that goes by for these animals, where they're living in fear, where they're living in pain, where they're living in suffering, that is all consuming to them in the same way that it'd be all consuming to us because they're not just a number. They're not just a collective of these kind of like objects. Mm. You know, they are these individuals with their own feelings, their own senses, their own experiences. And to them, their life is everything in the same way that our life is everything to us. And our life is precious because we have one life. Well, their life is precious to them because they too have one life and they can't conceptualize maybe in the same way that we can. They can't do the things that we can do. But when you boil it down, the things that, makes, that make our life intrinsically valuable 
consciousness, sentience, experience, feeling, capacity to suffer, capacity to experience joy and happiness, they too have those things. And so their life individualistically must also have intrinsic value for the same reason that ours does or the animals that we conventionally love in our homes do. It's a big message to try and convey on, on a billboard, but that's why I try and convey that we're not the same and we're very different in so many different ways. But what we do share in common is what is the most important thing. Yeah. 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 No, I love that. I mean, maybe it's something like every creature on earth is an individual with individual yeah. feelings and emotions and a life. And, and I mean, I'm sure non-human animals have dreams about like what they want to accomplish. You know, it's it probably looks different than us, but like they want to survive, they want to thrive. And, and then like end it with like live accordingly, like act accordingly, like make yeah. decisions accordingly, because it's so important to see every creature um, in, in that way, non-human and human, uh, human animals alike. Yeah. Ed, you've been fantastic. I love this so much. Uh, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Nick. Thank you for having me and for the great, very insightful and thoughtful questions. Yeah, I really appreciate them. Friends, thank you so much for joining Ed and me for this conversation today. Visit earthlinged.org to learn more about Ed and all the amazing work he is doing. Visit letsgiveadam.fm for more resources and links. And while you're there, you can sign up for our email list and you can listen to 175 other podcast conversations just like this one. Lastly, thank you all for listening. I'm truly honored that you come back week after week to listen to these conversations. It means the world to me. This show is produced by Chad Snavely and the team at Sound On Sound Off Studios. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime. Hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. I love y'all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.